The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Good morning, Ariadne. It's time to wake up. It is 7 a.m. on October 15th, 2050. The high in Vancouver will be 15 degrees. There is an air quality warning in place due to a prescribed burn in Garibaldi. Masks are recommended. Do you know when this burn is supposed to end? Mom was going to take us hiking this weekend. The prescribed burn is expected to last two days. Smoke warning is expected to be lifted by noon tomorrow, depending on atmospheric pressure. This is 2050, Degrees of Change, a CBC Vancouver podcast exploring how climate change will shape our province by the middle of the century. I'm CBC meteorologist Johanna Wagstaff. We know firsthand how devastating a wildfire can be. But by 2050, we'll be facing more fires and more disasters like the wildfire that ripped through Fort McMurray, Alberta, destroying homes and displacing nearly 90,000 people. From where I'm standing, they're 10 meters high in the air, just right along the highway. The heat is just absolutely indescribable right now. It was just, it was the thickest smoke I've ever seen. It was just black. Oh my God, Sarah, this is going to burn down. They didn't even let us take our things and when we asked them. So we lost everything now. We all have what we have on our backs. I was part of the CBC team who covered the Fort McMurray fire. And after a week of intense fire weather forecasting, shifting winds, bone dry conditions, and flames so intense they were creating their own lightning, I was sent to the scene. Standing on a burn track just outside of Fort McMurray with the smoke still rising in the distance. But it was meeting the people at the evacuation centers, the airport, the gas stations that I will never forget. People who had lost everything. People who worked tirelessly to help in any way they could. People who knew their community would be changed forever. And people who recognized me and ran over to ask if I could tell from the satellite images if their home had been lost to the fire. And I could. Climate change means BC will be facing a longer, more explosive fire season, and that will have profound effects on our forests, our economy, and on our livelihood. We are in Lower Trepania Creek, uh, just uh, outside of Peachland in the Okanagan, southern interior BC, uh, in what is what was historically kind of a dry ponderosa pine grassland forest. And today it's more of a ponderosa pine Douglas fir forest. So it's changed over time. This is Bob Gray. He's a fire ecologist who studies the behavior of wildfires, and he's brought us here to a clearing near a school in Peachland to show us what a fire-prone ecosystem looks like as we look to the future. Well, the research is suggesting that we're going to see significantly longer fire seasons, um, and that means that um, 
more fuels will dry out and become available to burn. Uh, we'll have hotter fires because they'll have longer residence times. Um, crews will have a more difficult time catching fires. Right now, success rate's about 97%. Um, if we have a longer fire season, we can expect that the success rate will diminish, and so more fires will get away and we'll have larger fires. So all in all, we can see longer fire seasons, lots more fire on the landscape, and the consequences of that. With some of the modeling you've been looking at and, and the way things have already begun to increase as far as more extreme wildfire days in BC, do we have any sense, like a range of what percentage of extreme fire days we're talking about in 2050? Some of the models are suggesting that uh, on the coast, we may see coast and temperate forests, we may see an increase of, of one to two days per year, kind of extreme conditions. Now, that's kind of an average annual situation. We will likely see years like 2014 more frequently, where 2014 was, was a bad year coastal fire-wise. Um, and that stretched out over 10 or 20 years becomes an average of one additional day. It's kind of proportionality of it. In the interior, we can expect to see that fire season increase by months I think over the last two decades, some of the research is suggesting that fire season has extended by 30 to 50 days. So we would expect to see that increase a bit more. The north is still a little bit shady about the effects of the model. Some are suggesting it could get wetter, it could get warmer. Um, the pattern we're seeing right now in the north is that longer fire seasons for sure. Um, the snow's coming off quicker, it's drying out quicker, and the fires are starting sooner. So. And I guess that sort of applies to an increase in triggers as well, possibly more thunderstorms and, and maybe more human-started fires? Well, certainly if you have a longer fire season, it's only a matter of probabilities. Uh, if you have X number of open ignitions on the landscape, cigarettes, car exhaust, catalytic converters, everything else, um, and fuels are available, it's just a matter of, of simple probabilities. You're going to have more ignitions. Some of the research is suggesting we're likely to see more lightning Another thing that's come out of recent research is atmospheric pressure anomalies changing too. So more of these blocking highs, so sort of stagnating conditions, drying things out. But then also like stronger highs, deeper lows, and this gradient resulting in when a system moves on is extremely strong winds. So it's really a bad situation that we're looking at. Are you worried that we'll see, period, but also, before we get there, <laughs> that we'll see more situations like Fort McMurray and, and Kelowna a few years ago? I, I think we definitely will. I mean, as things dry out, our, our ability to catch these fires uh, is, like I said, it's getting more difficult. Um, we're going to see big, big hot fires, very expensive fires in the future. I mean, with all the dead pine we have in B.C., we've had some success in harvesting it, but it's a big, broad plateau, and... It wouldn't be out of the question to see a million hectare fire in BC. It's it's highly possible. I mean, it was a 500,000 hectare fire in Alberta, but it's a million hectare fire is just not out of the question. So, so that's where we start to get worried. That's where we start to get worried. Uh, and you know, throughout the interior where we have a lot of values in the landscape, a 10,000 hectare fire is a bad fire. So, um, a million hectare fires where there's no people, yeah, that's that we can we can deal with that. But even a 10,000, 15,000 hectare fire with a lot of values is a bad fire. When fires get hot enough, they actually start to create their own weather, making a dangerous situation even more unpredictable. As intense heat from the ground rises up, carrying ash and smoke, 
they suck up what little water vapor is available and begin to develop like summertime cumulus clouds. The updrafts and downdrafts get stronger until the tops of these pyrocumulus clouds are towering above 30,000 feet. In rare cases, these fire clouds can actually rain on themselves, but more often, they create strong shifting winds and lightning that spark new fires and even fire nados. It is every bit as terrifying as it sounds, and large, hot fires are already happening more often. So what do we do? Bob Gray says the answer is maybe, ironically, more fire. By setting controlled burns, fire ecologists can help areas from becoming tinderboxes that could turn a fire from a lightning strike into an inferno. We're at a point right now where we have a lot of carbon stored on the landscape. And, and that's the problem. And I mean, standing here in the Southern interior, we're looking at a forest that historically probably had about 30 to 50 stems per hectare. And right now there's, there's probably close to 4,000. So, and, and historically it was just grass. It was grass and shrubs and herbs. And um, so if we want this to survive the next fire, the fire needs to be on the ground. So we have to remove all of this excess biomass and we have to maintain this in that, you know, low density, tree density, grass state through repeated prescribed burning. And we need to do that over large areas. We get to high elevation and that's where we need to basically break up the landscape so that we have smaller fires in the future and not huge, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 hectare fires. So if we replant species that are more fire tolerant, then they're able to survive the next fire. If we go back and replant species like lodgepole pine, they're not very fire tolerant. They'll be killed in the next fire, and then they become a future fuel. Here in the ponderosa pine forest, we need to get rid of Douglas fir and manage for ponderosa pine. In the East Kootenays, it's managing for western larch and ponderosa pine, the the two most fire tolerant species in the province. On the coast, where we're going to see some increased drying in the odd years, like 2014, it's, it's managing for Douglas fir. And, and it's probably being more efficient at suppressing future fires and not letting those fires go. So, so it really comes down to managing for individual areas. It really is managing, in, because everything they're all complex. Each place is going to have to have its own specific sort of ecological direction. Standing in this spot right here, it's a, it's a matter of, of removing all this biomass, and it has no value. So it's a cost. It's a huge cost. And it's a cost to society to do it, but it's also a cost to society to not do it. You know, smoke is a huge issue. We, we talk about doing a lot more prescribed burning, and people don't want smoke. Um, the issue, though, is how do you want your smoke? Uh, there is no no-smoke option. If we were permitted to do more prescribed burning, we can just, you know, puke out a little bit of smoke in the spring and fall and you know people can shut their windows and doors and maybe take off for the weekend or something and we're good we have to do a lot of that but people are going to have to get used to smoke and um, there, there just is no no smoke option of course this poses a serious public health issue there's a reason people don't like smoke but in the year 2050 wildfire smoke is a constant hazard from the early spring through to the early fall now here's the thing While fire is terrible for humans, both for our health as well for our livelihoods, fires aren't necessarily a bad thing for forests. In fact, fire plays an important role in forest ecology. Many tree species have adapted to emerge only after a fire sweeps through an area. But climate change may even be changing that. 
Fire is a, is a, a natural process in most of our vegetated ecosystems in BC. But standing here in the Southern Interior, I mean, this is a really fire-adapted ecosystem, it was historically. Um, fire would come through on a regular basis, uh, sometimes as frequently as every five to seven years. And so many species, um, through evolution, adapted to that fire regime. The funny thing standing here is if we had a fire and we came back the next spring, we would find a lot of species that we don't currently see here. And they have seed stored in the soil and it takes heat to scarify the seed and cause it to germinate. Species like um, uh, Ceanothus, which is a very important browse species for deer and elk. And somehow those wildlife species know to go to burned areas because it's succulent foliage. Plants after fire and after that top kill, they put all their energy into growth and no energy into protective enzymes and chemicals. So their foliage is highly palatable. Wildlife species know that. So everything tends to be kind of focused in on fire. It's just amazing how it works. It's pyrodiversity. It causes diversity. Without it, we lose diversity. How has climate change shifted that ecosystem that's been in place or that natural cycle for centuries? Well, climate change has the, uh, has the potential to um, really negatively affect that diversity. So we've already done damage by taking fire out of the system. What he's saying is we prioritize putting out fires right away instead of sometimes just letting them burn naturally, which means when fires do become out of control, there's a larger risk that they'll become more dangerous because of all that dry, dead fuel on the forest floor will keep it burning explosively. The next fire that comes through will likely produce more heat, the threshold of heat and the flux of heat into the soil than those species you know, adapted to over time. So through that evolution, they were adapted to a certain level of heat, heat impact. And we're going to deliver heat that they're just not adapted to. So it'll be climate change resulting in a fire and then the fire resulting in loss of diversity because it's a different kind of fire. So in places where we, we have a, a less frequent fire regime, we have a fire and the system has time to rebalance itself, resilience, and it has a chance to sort of grow back and get comfortable with its surroundings. And with climate change, we're going to truncate that and bring fire back too soon for the system to kind of adapt to it. And so we're going to have a lot of losers in that one. Here's the thing. While people, wildlife, we can move, trees can't. They might live for centuries. And while that means trees have evolved to be hardy and adaptable, the rate of change is happening so fast that trees aren't able to adapt with it. Normally when we think of fire season, you think of the hottest, driest days of the summer and fall. But by 2050, the wildfire season starts early. Some years as early as April. Some fires may smolder all year round. The snowpack simply isn't there to keep the forest ground moist enough to keep fires at bay. You remember Darwin Coxon from The Ancient Forest, that rainforest fueled by snow rather than rain? Well, he says they haven't been able to find any evidence of fire in this thousand-year-old cedar stand, all thanks to snow. The landscapes around Prince George are dominated by forests that typically burned every 90, 100 years. I moved into a new lot in the subdivisions, and when I dug a little pit in my garden, being a biologist, I could see the little layers of charcoal. Uh, but when we come out to these 
small patches of ancient cedars uh, east of Prince George. When you dig a pit in the soil, there's no charcoal layers, or the charcoal layers when we date them are like every 2,000 years. You can find evidence of fires here. You'll find a, a big old cedar that has been hit by lightning and has burned up, and perhaps a tree or two around it has been charred slightly, but then they fizzled out. And what's happening is that the springs in the seepage areas, the, the melt of that snowpack, creates very moist and humid conditions in these ancient cedar stands, and it protects them against fires. Uh, when you come to the edge of this, these topographic positions, you're suddenly back into forests that are three or 400 years old. So these are very special places in the landscape that are protected from fire by this linkage to the snowmelt. What do you think will happen to this forest by mid-century? We're in an area that has been newly placed into uh, BC Provincial Park. Uh, we're standing in the ancient forest Chundawadajit Provincial Park, just designated in the summer of 2016. So if anywhere in BC this forest could survive into the future, it will be here. But a lot depends on what happens to these winter snowpacks. We'll have some years, no doubt, that have normal winters, but we're seeing more dry years, more melt in the early spring. The, the records for the, the coldest periods we had recently, uh, in fact, are much warmer than cold periods we had a decade or two ago. So it's a landscape that's changing in slow motion around us, or, or not even that slow a motion. Snow's role is important to forest ecosystems across the province. And even if there are years where we see a return to the high, dense snowpacks that provide the moisture trees need, climate change brings other threats to our forests, like pests. Prince George is a community that knows firsthand the devastation pests can cause on forests. The mountain pine beetle affected 18 million hectares in B.C., an area the size of Washington state. It had a huge economic cost, destroying nearly 60% of pine trees that would have been logged. And forestry is still a major industry in BC. In 2013, it had an economic output of more than $31 billion. And what we plant right now is what will be harvested in 90 to 100 years. So it matters that we take a future climate into account. Che Elkin is the Mixed Wood Ecology Chair at the University of Northern British Columbia, which we should say is sponsored by the forestry company Slocan because his work has major implications for industry. We met him in a forested area near campus. Uh, when we look around us here, we see some beautiful spruce, some aspen, a little bit of uh, alder coming in. So it really is a mixed wood type of forest that is fairly indicative about the forest that we see in central northern BC here. Che's work looks at climate models and then tries to figure out what that means for future forests and what forest management practices can do to adapt to those changes. That's the thing about forests. You're dealing with things that don't move that quickly. In general, migration is very, very slow. So that's the biggest challenge that we're actually facing with respect to climate change. We're looking at the climate changing much faster than the ecosystems can actually respond. So if we are talking about what the future, what the forest is going to look in 2050, 2060, there we're looking at climate change that's going to greatly exceed the rate at which our forest can respond. So what we're likely going to see is that, yeah, there's going to be maybe not new species, but a different composition of the forest that we're, uh, than what we see here right now. 
Um, in the long term, if we're looking 200 years, yes, then we may see different species. But in the short term, it's going to be more a change in uh, the mixture that we see around us. And also, general prediction is that a gradual shift of the species that we see farther south up into a more northern area. Many of these trees have been around for hundreds, I mean, even thousands of years in this area. They're resilient to huge variabilities, but even in the next 30 years, it, it seems to me, looking at the climate projection, projections with uh, warmer winters and less snow and more rain, those are pretty extreme stressors. How will trees that are usually resilient, is this a, is this a big change for them? Yeah, so you're 100% correct. Trees are long-lived species. They're designed, evolution has designed them to withstand a lot of stresses. But when we get to areas where they really are pushing against the boundaries of what their biology allows them to do, that's where we may see fairly big shifts in what the actual forest composition is. Drought is a big stress. This is something that we've really come to realize more and more over the past 20 years, that a couple of really severe drought years can have huge impacts both on the growth as well as the mortality of many of the species of trees that we see in our forest. So yeah, um, they are very adaptable. They are designed to uh, be able to survive in many different conditions, but they do still have thresholds. And when those thresholds are exceeded, we may see really sharp reductions in growth this is not good for if we want to use them for fiber production, but also there's sometimes we actually see really strong uh, mortality events with those trees dying off as well. Nearly two-thirds of British Columbia is forested, and nearly one in seven jobs has a forestry connection. So when it comes to an industry that employs so many people in the province, what's the solution? Not putting all of our eggs, or our logs, in one basket. As in the forests themselves, there's a lot of lag. These trees that we see around us right here, they started growing 50 years ago, much different climate. For the managers, it's the same thing. They started managing these forests 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 10 years ago. And there's a lot of weight for how our industries work, how our uh, forest sector develops. And while people are starting to recognize more and more that we probably will be dealing with a different environment in the future, uh, there is a slow change taking place. But it is taking place. Um, I don't think anyone uh, these days would say that uh, we don't expect some changes in the future. The magnitude of those changes and the type of impact that actually has on our forests, that's really where the question is right now. And it's not just what industry harvests, but how it's harvested. In 2050, warmer, wetter winters in places like Prince George means the harvest starts earlier. And that means loggers have to navigate the roads at night when it's cooler as they try to beat the mud that makes those back roads impassable, roads that used to be reliable. In 2050, our northern forests are at a tipping point. Trees planted in the 20th century are getting weaker, worn down by drought and pest outbreaks. And as we mentioned, forest fires have been devastating in some parts of the province. The ongoing public forestry debate isn't over softwood lumber. It's over whether the forest industry should be able to grow on crown land. Because climate change doesn't just affect the economic value of our forests. In a rapidly changing climate, trees provide some essential services. Shade provides cool areas and urban settings, as well as for fish swimming upstream in warming waters. Dense networks of roots hold together soil and prevent erosion and washouts during torrential rain. And of course, trees capture carbon from the atmosphere. Back at the ancient forest trail, our producer Polly and I asked Darwin Coxon how much carbon a forest like this could capture. You have to be careful you don't generalize about forests and carbon sinks over the whole landscape. Uh, A young lodgepole pine forest at Prince George is very different from a 
thousand-year-old ancient cedar stand. Uh, there's been some great work on carbon storage in the ancient cedar stands done by my colleagues at UNBC, and we know that these forest stands store as much carbon as stands in some of the very wet locations on the coast, the coastal temperate rainforest, uh, you know, upwards of 500 tons of carbon per hectare, huge carbon stores in these old forests. Um, the, the best strategy for reducing greenhouse gas emissions is, is to leave these old forests standing. When you log these old forests, that's 500 tons of carbon per hectare that is largely released back to the atmosphere. Uh, the province has announced a plan to make sure that all of our forests are fully restocked. Uh, we're planting these trees in sites that we plan to log every 80 or 90 years. So it's, it's a short-term storage of carbon. That carbon will, re will be released back to the atmosphere when we log those forests in the future. It's like taking out a loan from the bank. You know, you've got all this money in your pocket and you think you're rich, but you have to pay it back. So it's a good idea for the ecosystem, but it's probably not a strategy that will reduce our carbon emissions as a province in the long term. As our forests change, so too will the animals that use them. Many wildlife are already facing enormous stress, including habitat loss from human activity, whether it's expanding suburbs or hydroelectric dams. By 2050, some species won't be able to adapt quickly enough, including the mountain caribou, who depend on ecosystems like this snow forest for food during the winter. The chocolate bars are the trees. Um, what does a caribou need in the wintertime? Um, doesn't need a lot of protein, it just needs energy. You know, if it's 30 below out, you're burning a lot of calories. And it turns out these hair lichens... He's using his ski pole to point out a light green hair lichen hanging a few meters up in the branches of a large cedar. It lives up to its name. It hangs down almost like a beard. They dry out because of all those sugars. Uh, that also protects them from freezing in the wintertime. And that's why caribou love them as a food source. They're like little chocolate bars hanging in the trees. <laughs> Climate change means getting that lichen fix will be that much harder for an already stressed and dwindling population. The, the herd in Sugar Bowl Grizzly Dan area here is probably about half the size it was 25 years ago. Uh, if I remember recent conversations, it's probably about 90, 100 animals right now. But they'll be wandering through these uh, mountain forests at this time of year. And this is what they're having for breakfast and lunch and supper. Uh, years with record low snowpack uh, could lead to greater mortality amongst the caribou. And of course, these warmer winters with more rain events, uh, more transitions back and forth between rain and snow, mean that, that these lichens, which formerly just sat there pretty inactive all winter long, they're now wet, they're now metabolizing. The lichens themselves are starving to death because it's not light enough in the winter for photosynthesis. So a possible impact of warmer winters is that the food source for the caribou uh, could also disappear because the winters are too warm. This is an ecosystem that is adapted to cold snowy winters from the mountain caribou to the, the giant cedars. They need a deep snowpack to survive. Some animals, like grizzlies, will adapt by pushing further north. But for many species, heading for cooler temperatures means pushing through some of the most populated parts of the country, the Canada-U.S. border. 
environment, just right along with species and everything, does not recognize international boundaries. It never has and never will. This is Byron Lewis. He's the chief of the Okanagan Indian Band, and he's worked with multiple parliamentary committees, both with the AFN and the National Aboriginal Council. Currently, he sits on the AFN's Advisory Committee on Climate Action and the Environment. He says the failure to properly deal with climate change will have direct impacts on wildlife and First Nations' inextinguishable rights. Well, you look around uh, this valley right now, do you see a place where uh, species could actually move north and don't have a recognized uh, corridor to move north from? So what's going to happen? You know, they're going to be blocked at a certain point. So if we're going to be looking at how we can actually, again, mitigate the effects of global warming, we have to ensure that there's adequate uh, corridors going uh, north-south for this uh, movement to species as they, you know, uh, uh, move into um, different habitat. What might that mean as far as a a cultural impact for, you know, people who have have a history and a, a connection to one kind of species and who, you know, grew up knowing the land through stories one way, uh, how, how might climate change impact that in a, in a cultural sense? If you actually look at it from that um, perspective, you know, all species would have some type of uh, a practice associated with them. When I first uh, started in politics about 1991, I was told at that time by our elders, look after the animals and they in turn will look after you. And, you know, being, uh, you know, I was in my early 20s, it didn't really sort of sink in until I started uh, witnessing this through my political career. But if you look at the 190, probably 98, 899 uh, Supreme Court decisions that were won by First Nations, a majority of them started out with access, but now it's moving from access to to protection of. This means that it's not just a legal question about whether provinces or the federal government are restricting First Nations from accessing their inherent rights, such as traditional fishing grounds, but whether governments have done enough to make sure there's still fish there to catch it all. And that could lead to some landmark lawsuits. And this is significant when you look at that, and especially when you look at uh, Supreme Court decisions in Canada that said in terms of extinguishment of rights, there's a question of even the federal government has the authority to extinguish a right, but definitely provinces do not have that jurisdiction. They may infringe, but they may not extinguish. Now, if you look at the majority of the practices, especially in resource development that leads to decline and uh, the extinction of a species, it's being conducted by provinces that do not have that authority. So in those, you know, what's going to be coming in the next few years is eventually is going to be the socioeconomic, uh, you know, um, movement where you're looking at qualifying and quantifying Aboriginal rights, and that's going to be significant. You take in consideration salmon, there's a there's an actual net value to that. And if you're an Aboriginal person and part of your tradition is having access to that at uh, meals, and you start looking at that per pounds per day for our people, then you times that by 365, then you times that by the retail value of salmon being eight ninety nine a pound, you're talking about some significant values. The same type of Consideration can be given to uh, other wild game or what's considered country foods. 
So when you start looking at the qualification and quantification, it's quite significant. And those are going to be the next, uh, you know, what you're going to see on the horizon is the damages, the effects from there. And that's where the highest potential comes from, the need to mitigate will come from, because it's suddenly no longer of, so chief, where do you pick berries to, oh my God, how are we going to fix this mess? How are we going to fix this mess? The challenge of finding a solution to something as far-reaching and as overwhelming as climate change can be daunting, especially just as one person. But most of the scientists, researchers, and thinkers we spoke with, they were cautiously optimistic. I actually feel pretty hopeful about our ability to address climate change. If the infrastructure is there to support those kinds of behaviors, then I think people will take that. And I think we have to come together and figure out what sort of planet do we want? I have uh, five grandchildren, so I'm interested in the future that they will inherit. Vancouver is a leader in moving towards a low-carbon economy. I believe that we can get out in front and make a difference. We are not necessarily doomed. Not necessarily. But how well we fare in 2050 and beyond depends on what we do today. On our next episode, Consequences and Solutions. I'm CBC meteorologist Johanna Wagstaff, and this is 2050, Degrees of Change, a CBC Vancouver podcast exploring how our province will be transformed by climate change in the year 2050. You can download this episode and all the others at cbc.ca slash podcasts or on iTunes. And you can also leave us a rating or review if you enjoyed it. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.